One of the strongest forces on the internet is the belief that someone else is wrong or something else is wrong. That it's wrong, they're doing it wrong, and it needs to be put right immediately. And as we know, that's not always the most positive motivation on the internet. But it can be. It can be the thing that pushes us out of the status quo. The thing that forces us to make fundamental improvements rather than just incremental ones. That burning feeling that the current way we're doing things is wrong. It can drive genuine revolutions in programming. It can upset the apple cart. And it can also be the drive that pushes us programmers out from behind the keyboard into starting some genuinely new businesses. Some of the most successful businesses I know started with someone saying, the current way we're doing this software isn't good enough. And the only way I can change it is by stepping outside the current system. And that was kind of the starting point for today's guest, Joran Dirk Grief. He had an urge to build an open source database called Tiger Beetle and then build a company around it from looking at the current status quo and wanting to change things radically. And it's still early days for Tiger Beetle. They are just about to go into production. So I'd say, you know, they're reaching the end of Act One of their story. But I think that story, that journey from discontent to inspiration to launch, it's one that speaks to all of us programmers who have a little slice of entrepreneurship in us. And along that journey, along the way, Yoran has some really interesting ideas about how we should be doing systems design, clustering, network communication, reliability, integration testing, all these things burning to build something genuinely new, which is putting Yoran on a heck of a road, a long road. And yeah, we're going to meet him at a waypoint on that journey and hear the story so far. So I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Joran Dirk Grief. My guest today is Joran Dirk Grief. Joran, how are you doing? Hi, Chris. I'm doing really well. Great to be here. Good, good. And where are you coming from? You're coming from somewhere in South Africa, is that right? Yes. Interesting thing is, I'm. We are actually same time zone, London time, uh, best time zone <laughs> in the world. Most most overlap with all the continents, and but I'm calling in from Cape Town. Uh, ah, so nice. Yeah, it's on my list of places to visit. Okay, you you haven't been yet. Not yet. Not yet. I'll yeah, find an no. excuse soon. Um, okay. Well, you've got actually... a develop a, a developer friend here. You know, so I'll I will uh, tour you around. <laughs> I'll look you up when I come over. <laughs> yeah. See, now, the reason I've got you on, your your story starts very much in Cape Town and a project around there, right? And one thing I'm always interested in is developers who have such an itch to scratch that they end up walking along that road saying, this should be a real product and a real business. So let's start with where you got the inkling of that. You're working on some project for payments. Fill me in, fill me in. Yes, so I I love that question. Um, I can relate to that. I think this was like a I don't know. I think it was a sixteen year itch in the making, and <laughs> and then and then COVID happened, and 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 COVID was a catalyst for a lot of people. I think to do a lot of oh, yeah, interesting yeah. projects. Um, it was not an easy time, uh, but I I studied. Yeah, in I was always into coding um, as a as a boy and. And I loved coding and I always wanted to do a business. And um, so I actually studied accounting at university because I understood people told me, you know, that uh, it was actually on my list of things not to study. I had a list, <laughs> 10 things never to study. And number one you literally was accounting. Wrote down a list. <laughs> I think so. I had it, I had it in my head at least. And so okay. accounting was top of the list. Uh, and yet I always wanted to do a business a startup that was in my, in my blood, in my nature, my grandfather immigrated from Netherlands and he built his own business and my father built his own business. And so it was just a thing that I was always going to be an entrepreneur or just, just someone to, to start a little company, you know? And yeah, yeah. so, and, and so I had this conflict. I didn't want to study accounting and, I wanted to start a business and people actually 
spoke to me and said, well, look, you know, accounting is a great way to see the world of business because that's how you describe business is accounting. And so I, I thought, yeah. oh, okay. So I, so I went and studied accounting instead of computer science. And, um, and I got, and then I actually got back into coding, thankfully. And I, I got into startups. Um, but it was a long time, like 16 years or so of just honing my skill and practicing and coding and coding and coding. And that was a period where I could learn a lot and discover a lot of techniques and get into storage systems and how to write fast software, how to write safe software and learn. Um, and was incredible. I, Daniel Lenoir, the music producer, used to say that he spent 16 years in a cave learning how to work with you know, sound engineering equipment. And I kind of can relate to that because I was in this cave in Cape Town in, you know, somewhere inside Table Mountain just for a decade or more, just practicing. And then, yeah, yeah then all of us, yeah. And then, and then COVID yeah. happened. And the next thing I knew, I, I bumped into Adrian Hope Bailey on a soccer field and uh, he said, well, you know, he's working on this payment switch and I had no clue what a payment switch was. So, but, um, he brought me in to consult on it and to see, you know, how can we make this payment switch faster? Um, and that's sort of, you know, that, that's fast forward that, that was now 2020. And, um, yeah. So w what was interesting there was that I had this background of doing things differently, you know, living in a cave in Table Mountain, honing my skill. Um, yeah. And so I, I had specialized in, in, a, in the Galapagos, Galapagos Islands, you know, and, and become this, this interesting data, <laughs> you know, database developer <laughs> creature. Uh, You've evolved and then, to a different genetic path than everyone else. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. And yeah. and then what happened was I, I came up to this payment switch and we had to see how can we increase the number of transactions per second, you know, from it was, if you gave it a lot of high-end um, cloud hardware, you could get 2,000 transactions a second, which is a lot. Um, but that, that wasn't good enough for me. You know, I thought, well, can't, can't we do 200,000 a second? Can't we do a million? Why not? What, you know, um, because I had, I understood from some of the experiments I was doing that even a, a spinning disk is really fast. It can write sequentially 500 megabytes a second. Um, mm. and that, that's not even solid state, you know, so flash can do, you, you get devices already that are beyond three gigabytes a second. And if you think of the information, you think of the raw materials, you have you have disk, you have network, you have memory, and you have CPU, you've got these four physical raw materials and you can reorder them in an interesting combination. And why why can't you process transactions really quickly? You know, with we've got these incredible raw materials. So I looked at the switch, and from the very first second of the engagement, I was already drawing on the boardroom table. You know, here, here's another sketch <laughs> for something totally different that could power the switch, kind of like Iron Man. You know, take out take out the old um, heart and put a new one in, and suddenly oh, you've yeah, got yeah. more. You got you got all this. You know, this this energy. Um, and, Are you allowed but to at tell the same, us roughly what the existing architecture was for comparison? Yeah, so sure, sure. Thanks, great question. So this, I think, this would be helpful, you know, uh, for people listening in. So uh, the existing architecture was a, a MySQL database. SQL rules the world. So you had a SQL database. You had ten thousand lines of application code around the database like we all do. And mm. obviously there was a lot of Kafka um, streaming everywhere. And, and that's still there. That, that's, that's kind of orthogonal. So the heart of this payment switch was a SQL database that was tracking transactions, basically bank balances and um, transfers between bank accounts um, for the participant banks using this payment switch. So it's, you can think of it as like eight rows in a SQL table, eight banks, eight rows, and then you're doing a lot of transactions across these rows. So it's it's actually okay. so simple, you know, really simple. Uh, you've got a table of accounts, and there's eight accounts, and then you've got a, 
a table of transactions and and transactions that table is big you know that's the whole um, financial history but the yeah. interesting stuff is that you're really just trying to move you're moving numbers you're doing addition and subtraction across eight rows and and to do that there was 10,000 lines of application code yeah it seems okay this is always one of those things where you uh where until you actually see the code, you don't realize the complexity you're not seeing. But on the surface of it, that seems like disappointing performance, given that you're only yes. swapping money between eight different accounts. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And I think this is the interesting thing. What I learned is that I think, we, I mean, just in general, you know, as you work with a SQL database, you know, we denormalize our data or whatever. Um, we've got different, you know, then you, sometimes you have, um, you, you've got indexes and you've got tables and you've got schemas and design. But how often do we stop to think how many rows are going to be in this table? Are there going to be eight rows or 800,000 or 8 million or 8 billion? And yeah. what what's very interesting with this actual domain is that, very often you actually only have like eight banks and and say we've got eight rows or, or you in practice you actually have a little bit more so i'm i am simplifying maybe you've got 16 or you've got 32 it's some multiple of the number of banks but very often you only have four banks or eight banks or 16 it, it's pretty much the same order of magnitude um, so the table is actually very simple in that sense. You know, you can see it. You can. This is like a yeah. an Excel sheet that could fit on a screen without horizontal or vertical scrolling. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and probably did actually, in the prototype. Yes, yes, exactly. And the, but the performance then of two thousand transactions a second is actually not bad for. for 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 a SQL database, and that that was the other thing I learned is that, you know, if you do if you do one network round trip to do a transaction, um, you can only physically do so many, you know, according to your network bandwidth and according to the write locks that are going on in the database. And remember, like the database also has to do it has to write to disk for that transaction and has to call F sync. And there's only so many F-syncs that a disk can do a second. And obviously now with Flash, that's gone way up. Um, but when you put all this together, you know, row locks, individual row locks and network requests and round trips and latencies and disk latency, there's always a fixed cost that you pay to write even the smallest of unit of information to disk durably, you're going to pay a minimum fixed cost. And yeah. then as you write more, you're going to pay more, but you've always got this minimum threshold whenever you want to get something to disk. But then if you think about it, you know, we typically use SQL databases and we do one SQL transaction for one real world event. So one, one real world event is one physical SQL transaction. One, in other words, one logical transaction, one financial transaction is one physical SQL transaction. And that has a minimum then, cost, right? And that has a so, minimum cost, exactly. And, and so kind of the 2000 is not bad because, you know, Simon Iskilson has got a fascinating blog called Napkin Math and he dives into this one of his posts, you know, how, how many F-syncs can MySQL do if a MySQL <laughs> could do F-Syncs, uh, you know, or Postgres? And, and that's a really interesting question because it brings in things of group commit. Obviously, the database is going to internally batch some of these transactions so to mm. try and amortize that minimum cost. But kind of when you look at it, like hand wave, the rough, rough napkin order of magnitude is maybe you can do 10,000 transactions a second. That's like your theoretical limit for these designs. Yeah. Okay, so now having convinced me that that's pushing on to the limit, what makes you think you can do better? What makes you think you can get up to like half a million or whatever numbers you're aiming for? <laughs> yes, so this comes back to like, you know, scratching the itch for a long time. Um, and what was funny was the, you know, the very first day of the engagement, we were sketching our, our tables in the office. I was thinking about this this morning, but there are these white tables and you can draw on them. 
with a permanent marker. And then you've got like a little, you can rub it out. But you can actually, oh, okay. all the tables in the office, you are supposed to draw on them. So they encourage graffiti. So, and I mean, if it wasn't for that, maybe Tiger Beetle wouldn't exist because, you know, we were we were in the boardroom where I am now. We were at the, at this uh, the conference for this payment switch. We were looking at the architecture, and and already I was just drawing on the table. And it was my first day in the office, you know, uh, and I didn't I didn't feel bad drawing on the table, uh, but I, I already was sketching out something that I thought could do much better. And it all to answer your question, it all comes back to. Just taking a step back and saying, well, look, we've got incredible raw materials at our disposal. Um, you've got NVMe that can now do three gigabytes a second of sequential write. We have like raw information, like there's a, a minimum size in bytes to capture the information content that's being processed by the system, by this raw materials. But what if we could, you know, re, re, reorder the composition of these re, these raw materials in an in a more optimal way and basically what you have to do is you have information that flows into the switch network network bandwidth isn't really a problem um, it, it can handle quite a lot of information then you have to write this information to disk and that has a minimum cost so you there's an advantage that you maybe write um, one megabyte a second uh, you, you know one one megabyte per not one megabyte a second, but one megabyte for each syscall, you know, uh, because that that's, you don't want to do like, you don't want to write one byte at a time or a hundred yeah. bytes or a thousand bytes. You want to do something a little bit bigger. <coughs> um, because that, that just amortizes that, that syscall cost. Um and, and if you start to do that, well, you can see, you know, then after that, you've written it to disk durably. Um, then you have to run it through your in-memory state. And you can picture your in-memory state as just a few hash tables. So, again, you've got eight hash tables. Uh, mm. so, sorry, you've got, you've got one hash table with, with eight keys in it. And each value is the bank account balance for these eight banks. Um, again, I'm simplifying, but this is really the the – the, the 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 skeleton the bone structure of this human that we're trying to create you know the you you can yeah. start to see the form if you can understand this that you've got one hash table in memory you've got eight keys eight balances and well how fast can you write to a hash table and actually you can do this was some of the work that I had done experiments you you can do some of the new high performance hash tables can do at least say ten ten million inserts a second which makes sense because the memory bandwidth is pretty good and you can look at like you know how many nanoseconds does it take to do a cache miss to go to a location in memory and it's yeah. it's maybe 70 nanoseconds or better and you work that all back and you know if you know that that that, uh, that there's also memory parallelism. You know, the, the chip can access 10 cache lines and pull them from main memory in parallel. You start to, to see, you know, what a hash table can do. And now, you know, you've got network, then you write to disk durably, then you, you do a lot of hash table operations, um, and then you're done and you, you send <coughs> an, an ACK, ACK back across the network. Um, and that, that's kind so of you're the, doing like you know, this, um, event sourcing trick where you capture the raw data store that durably and then do the onward processing and then you don't have to worry about the onward processing being quite as durable because you can always reconstruct it that's right and that's kind yeah. of using a log so event sourcing or thinking thinking of a database as a log you know there's that that classic saying the the database is the log and everything else yeah. is just a cache. And yeah. I had a I had a, a chat, you know, with Alex Gajago of Red Panda, and I asked him because I, I see Red Panda as a database, which is is a funny thing, you know. People will say, "Well, <laughs> it's is one it of my really?" Favorite debates. Yeah. Y yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I asked Alex. I said, "You know, there's some of some of our friends will say, well, is it really a database?'" And obviously, I think it is. And Alex, I'm gradually Alex coming to the conclusion quote. that yeah. if I think. Uh, I think if you tell someone who's used to databases that it's a database, they'll be disappointed. But if you tell someone that, that's used to logs that it's a database, they'll think, yeah, this has way more power than I thought originally. 
But sorry, you had a quote. Yes. I interrupted you. You had a quote. No, well, well, that that's that quote. You know, the database is the log, and everything else is a cache. But that that is actually how you know Postgres works. Um, MySQL, all these systems, they have write-ahead logs. They have a log. Yeah, and, and that's really and, the master record that you don't get to see. Mm, mm. Yes, they they put it in the log. Then there's some processing. Um, there's going to be more data written to disk, you know, as indexes are updated. But really, that is all. You can think of that as cache, because um, if you if you and this is also how the databases guarantee atomicity, so crash um, consistency through a crash, or what they call crash consistency through power loss. So the database is busy doing things, updating indexes, doing a lot of work, and then you pull the pull the cord. And and really, it comes back to the log. At startup, it's going to go back to the last known location in the log, and it's going to redo that work. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there's there's many ways, obviously, of of specialising on this. But this is the big idea: is that you've got network, and you've got a log, and then you've got in memory work, and maybe you'll have more storage work later. Um, so. So I, I kind of did see this through the same lens, and this is even how file systems work. You know, for example, ZFS um, also also has the log, um, and then there's copy on write. Um, but taking a step okay. back, I thought, well, you know, <clears throat> the 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 information content of a financial transaction. It's, um, I mean, this is another question. You know what? what is a transaction in the OLTP world? Uh, it's kind of like you've got the who, you've got the who, what, the when, where, and the why. So that <laughs> that is OLTP, you know? Uh, who, what, when, where, why, how much, and you need to do a lot of that and you want to be highly available and online. Um, yeah. and, and I think that is OLTP, you know, who, what, when, where, why, how much. And basically, if you squint and look at this, w- which I did as an accountant, yeah. I said, hey... OLTP is really double entry accounting, like it's the same thing because um, double entry accounting, it's we use this, it's been the schema for hundreds of years to model businesses, any kind of business um, that wants yeah. to track business events. They want to track the who, what, when, where, why, how much. So, 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 and, and it's the so, original event sourcing, right? Exactly. Original event sourcing, it it has all these properties that are very friendly for our raw materials of compute and storage and network. And, um, you, you, Alice, Bob, that's the who, um, what, well, you know, it was uh, Alice reimbursed Bob, um, uh, and there's the why. Um, okay, it's the reimbursement. Um, the the how much is the amount. The when was when did the transaction happen? Maybe there's another when as well. You know, when was it recorded and when did it really happen? Um, there's a where as well. Like you want to track jurisdiction. And I was thinking about this yesterday. You know, as de- as a developer, like it took me a long time to realize. Yes, UTC timestamps. Just use UTC timestamps. <laughs> Yeah. And then it took me even longer to realize, no, UTC timestamps are not enough. You want to track the where as well. Like you want to track the the identifier of the locale so that you can, you know, DST or, you know, the classic calendar app. You want to show someone a time that makes sense in their time zone. Yeah. Um, yeah. UTC but, is data and everything else is formatting. That's my opinion. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, and and if you know the when and you know the where, you can do the formatting and yeah, yeah, yeah. But, okay, but double but entry actually. Design. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, actually, actually captures all of these um, yeah. quantities for you. You know, the um, it's it's a transaction between two people or places. You know, something moving from somewhere to somewhere else, like Google Maps. You know, get get me a direction in Google Maps. That's double entry accounting. You know, I want to go from Cape Town to London. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how long is it going to take? You know, um, it, okay, it's place yeah. to place uh, or or person to person. It's OLTP. Um, I'm I'm obviously being very hand wavy here, but I really think you know, at, in in principle, like the heart of OLTP is tracking these things, these business events, and double entry is a great schema for that. Um, yeah, yeah. I got my career start with uh, software systems for double entry accounting, and I still think it's one of the great data models and the great understanding of how you model what's actually happening in the world. Yes. We should get back to your journey because you've got you've got all this double entry accounting knowledge from your accounting training, and you've got 
an architecture you think is going to work written on a desk, <laughs> which is the first time I've heard that as a design tool. And it got wait, rubbed wait. out, Chris. It's, it no! got rubbed out. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the back of a napkin is more durable. <laughs> yes, yes. But how did you get onto the point of actually cutting this into software and seeing if it worked? So, yeah, I think that's the great tension, you know, because you have to always build trust. You know, if you're a consultant on a project, you can't jump in and say, well, we, we're going to, you know, redesign Postgres or MySQL um, in terms of <laughs> the optimal configuration of raw materials uh, from first yeah, principles. Yeah. And um, so I, so we actually, this was the, the best part, I think, is that we actually looked at the switch and we said, well, the heart of the switch is OLTP, it's SQL transactions. Less, there's thousands or tens of thousands of lines of code. You know, we could read this or we could see where do we talk to the database and let's instrument that. Let's trace every single SQL query that flows through the system and let's send a lot of payments through, a lot of financial transactions, a lot of OLTP. Let's see the physical transactions that are being issued across the network. So we traced the SQL. And then what we saw was for one logical transaction, there would be, say, 10 to 20 physical SQL transactions. And you could optimize that um, further. You know, some, some systems do do one SQL query for one physical transaction, one logical transaction. You can mm. do that. This particular switch there were good reasons for being between 10 to 20. Um, but this was interesting because you start to see there's an impedance mismatch um, because we're really trying to do OLTP. We're trying to do transactions processing, real mm. world business transactions, business events, using, yes, using physical database transactions. But the original, as far as I understand, the original meaning of OLTP was always in the sense of what does the user need, you know, first, and then we, yes, um, do you have physical transactions to do that? Physical transactions to implement because they are real-world transactions. Um, but you see there's an impedance mismatch. For every payment, there were like 10 to 20 network requests, F-syncs, et cetera. Yeah, there's and, a clear disconnect between the logical world and the reality of how the software is modeling it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, 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 in the past, this didn't matter because disks were so slow. You know, you, yeah. it, it really didn't matter. Um, and transaction volumes then, were never nearly that high, right? Because no one exactly. expected. Yeah. Exactly. So I think, like, this is my thinking lately. I think for a long time, OLTP was very, you know, was very welcoming. It said, yes, and we're also general purpose. You know, you can put all your metadata <laughs> everything in the same database and you can we're OLTP but also general purpose database <laughs> bless you thanks and <laughs> and that that was fine for a long time and then i think there's like a divergence you know OLTP and general purpose because of this impedance mismatch so coming back to your question when did we decide you know to do something different i think i'm really grateful that we we didn't immediately you know we first analyzed the switch and we could get these insights really understand the problem first rather than try and you know come up with a, a solution in search of a problem we could really understand the problem deeply and and see yes actually there's only on the order of 8 16 or 32 rows in this table and there's there's a highly contentious workload so straight away you start to see you know it actually doesn't make sense to horizontally shard because there are you know a, a, there's contention double entry you're you're going to update one bank account and update another one you you almost and, and sometimes you want to update all the rows because you're doing very interesting financial con contracts where they literally touch all the balances so sharding isn't going to solve the problem counterintuitively um, now it's going to make the cpu wait even more you know as you start doing network requests um, and so i think that we we were we did this work for like six months or so or, th or three months in, at th three months in, actually, th then there was just this period where I think 16 years 
had built up and, and you, <laughs> you know I, I it was actually a sunday afternoon it was raining um my one co-founder he does his best work when it rains and <laughs> i think i do my mine mine when the sun shines but this happened it happened to be raining i had the fire going i was listening to black keys this album el camino which is great and it was a sunday and covid and and i just like i banged the keys for five hours and i sketched sketch these raw materials and you got yeah. this prototype that could do like 200 or four it could do 200,000 two-phase transfers so which is you're doing everything twice so basically it could do 400,000 financial transactions a second and this was just a rough performance sketch um yeah. like back of the envelope and but and it was javascript so and and but it was it had all the ingredients it had f-sync there it had cryptographic checksumming even um, oh really which yeah yeah just to really yeah, so see more than just a very simple prototype yes yes yeah. yeah and it was trying to see you know if we sketch out the network protocol the disk protocol the in-memory hash table operations the the the, the real thing that could actually work you know um and it it, it could work so the, it was very basic, but after five hours and maybe a few days more work, we actually did plug it back in. We did a heart transplant. We took the the ledger database nice. out, you know, this MySQL yeah. and application code. We took that out. We put what we called ProtoBeetle. We put ProtoBeetle Proto into the switch. <laughs> and it took a day because the design had come out of the switch so we could put it back in, it, it extracted from a real problem. And straight away, you know, the switch that we, when we evaluated it, we had this trick where we would try and evaluate it on really small hardware. So it's very easy to do benchmarks where you have the, the best hardware. What we yeah. would try and do was have minimum viable deployment. Like what's the smallest, you know, GCP instance we can deploy this on and the minimum yeah. number of instances. Um, so we used to benchmark like that. And in, in those configurations, we would only get 76 transactions a second. And when we put ProtoBeetle in, we could get to 2,000 um, without oh, yeah. you know, fixing any of the other performance issues. Um, so that, yeah, so ProtoBeetle itself, you know, if you use it properly, you, you could get 400,000 a second. Um, there, there was a lot of other overhead in the switch, but it already made a, a you know order of magnitude difference. Uh, yeah. um, was that with the same level of guarantees about transactional safety, durability, or are you cutting corners on that? Um, so yeah, so ProtoBeetle was just a sketch, so it definitely wasn't um, it wasn't <laughs> beta ready, and um, it but it did do cryptographic checksumming. It did. Do logging to disk. It we we were basically trying to s evaluate the performance if if this could work. So it wasn't a plane that you would sell tickets for, um, but it was <laughs> it was like a it was like a plane that you could launch off a cliff and see that it flies. And wh whether it lands <laughs> is another story. You know, it, it didn't have landing gear, didn't have parachutes or. Um, Okay, it, we it, we best go yeah. on to the uh, <laughs> what happened next after that prototype. Yeah, because so, I'm hoping so that, you've built that, a plane that we can actually fly in at some point on this. I think that's that's the 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 whole question. You know, that's the heart of it. It's like you you can say to people, "Hey, we've built this plane, and it's so much faster," <laughs> and they're going to ask you, you know, well, um, is it as safe, you know, as as our regulated planes? Is it going to yeah. land me safely? And and you'd be like, no, you know, it's just really really <laughs> yeah. fast. Um, yeah. So. And and then you realize like how much work goes into safety. How do you make a plane really safe? Yeah. And how much speed even, do you sacrifice on that road? Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. And but you know, being involved with the payment switch again was a fantastic opportunity to learn because you realize that actually it's not good enough to say we're gonna be as safe as all the regulations and the standards and the existing planes. Because people are still gonna say, well, you say you're a safe, but you're still a startup. You know how? Like, I, it, it doesn't connect with people on a human level to say that you've built a new database and it's as safe as something that's thirty years tried and tested. Mm. Um, it, pe people are going to be well. That's table stakes, 
and I'm still going to err on the side of 30 years. I, I know you're as safe, um, but you're not 30 years. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. You've got an uphill battle on trust if you want to turn that into a business. Definitely. Exactly. So it comes, comes back to trust. And so then we realized, well, there were a few factors in this decision that actually these systems were 30 years old. You know, you, you, you spin the coin around one more time and you carry on with that and you go, well, actually they're 30 years old and there's, there's been tons of storage research. You know, these were those experiments again in the cave and like places like UW Madison and the fast conference, incredible research every year testing these systems. And that's kind of the other side of the coin. You know, they are tried and tested, which means in the research, they know how they fail. They, they've, you know, all the latent correctness bugs, how you can lose data through F-Sync gate, um, a lot of consensus systems that the design of the right ahead log is actually not fundamentally safe. And you can have global cluster data loss with a raft, with, with a lot of raft clusters. Um, some of them are patched for this, but the, you know, the stock standard raft consensus does, doesn't get you there safely. Um, so there was a lot of research around safety. Storage, storage fault research, um, distributed systems research, in which, which was also at UW Madison, and and then we started to see, okay, yes, we are going to build a database, and it's the perfect time to build it ten times safer. So, so again, like orders of magnitude, we, we, we it is so much fun, you know. You realize, hang on, like. You, that, that that moment of tension, like yes, we're just going to do this prototype. You you get past that, and then you realize, well, now we can do this a thousand times faster and ten times safer, um, and ten times cheaper. You know, because actually we made it ten ten thousand times faster. But let's give ten x of that for cheaper. You know, small hardware, um, rusty hardware instead of you know state of the art. So how can we make something that's really fast and small? and much safer because that that moves the needle and then um that's really what you want is far more safety so um yeah happy to drill so, into more of this you know um yeah so yeah so um let's talk let's get concrete about the implementation of this because i know you've you've got your design idea there the prototype has proved and you've decided to go ahead You've made some interesting choices, I know, about how you're going to implement this. Um, the, the first most obvious one that jumps out at me is your choice of programming language. Yes. You didn't stick well, with JavaScript as in the prototype. Yes, I, di I didn't stick with the memory safe language. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so I think probably the most surprising thing for someone, you know, if they ask why Zig. Zig and is I, the language you've chosen. Yeah. Yes. Zig, Zig is the language. Why not C? Um, why not Rust? Why not JavaScript? Why not Go? And I think the most surprising part of the answer is just to say, well, I truly believe, believed then and now that Zig was actually the safest choice. If you look not only at memory safety, but safety of the system. So safety is a much bigger thing than only memory safety. Safety has to do with correctness. What makes for correct control flow? And I think what makes for correct control flow is simple, explicit control flow. Um, a minimum of abstractions versus zero cost abstractions. So I, I would rather... I think more important than zero cost abstractions is to have a minimum of excellent abstractions because that reduces the probability of leaky abstractions. So it's things like, it's like subtle things like this. <laughs> probably just quickly step back. <clears throat> and um, for those that don't know the programming language Zig, give us the headline features. Yes. Okay, great. So, I was actually coming at this as a C developer. So around this time, I'd been doing most of my coding in C. And I was looking for a, a C replacement. 
I loved Rust. I had I had pointed like Ryan Dahl. I, I was just one of the people, and he had written Deno with the backend in Go. And I said, well, you know, Rust would be great because then you don't have two GCs. Um, so I did, but then I, you know, I was a C developer at heart, and I loved the simplicity of C and the control of C and and precision. And but Zig came along and it just fixed everything that was wrong with C. Um, but it also gave you far more safety. So it gave you checked arithmetic, which I thought was very important. Um, and actually, if you look at a lot of newer languages, if you look really closely, they most of them don't actually enable checked arithmetic by default in safe builds. So what checked arithmetic is, is if you're going to do integer operations on a type like a U64 or let's say mm. a U32, and that integer arithmetic is going to overflow, in a lot of languages, that's just undefined behavior or it's a it's a wraparound. And I, I had and it was come, your you know, the work using too small a U for the... Exactly. Yeah. But many languages, you would be surprised. I think if everyone went home and double checks this, you know, in a safe build, the default settings yeah. is checked arithmetic enabled. Usually the answer is no, which is very surprising because actually you want checked arithmetic on where safety is mission critical because I, I had done a lot of security work in, in the security work in the cave, you know, some R&D on how do you do static analysis to detect um, zero day exploits and it, mm. it worked, you know, you could, you could catch them. It was really fascinating, but a lot of it came down to like, let's look at a zip file and let's see, is there, is, is this zip file format, is there um, arithmetic overflow happening in these values? And and if there is, chances are it's almost certainly um, a zero day. It's going to attack the antivirus <laughs> software that opens it up because you're going to get arithmetic overflow, which will allow the, the malware to exploit something else. And you chain these things together and you get a CVE. So there's like arith checked arithmetic is really important if you look at things from a security perspective, I think. And and security, you flip that around, and well, that's safety. It's a big ingredient. So says so why Zig? You know, well, it, it it was one of the few languages that actually had it enabled in safe in the safe bolts. And I thought, wow, that that's a great design decision. I wish more languages had that. And then it had bounds checking, which is based. You know, if you if you're in C, you know, it's like walking blindfolded on the cliffs of Dover, and you're going to fall <laughs> yeah. off so so easily. You know, and you really want bounds checking uh, and Zig gave you that and you want, you know, actually like for distributed systems, the challenge isn't really memory safety bugs. Most of, there was some a paper on this, you know, I think on the order of like 90% of the major um, incidents in distributed systems are actually the lack of error handling around syscalls and zig was really great for that zig gave you first class error handling and the compiler would check you know if you don't do proper error handling you can't just ignore stuff um even now zig has got a, a design decision that people have pushed back on you know no unused variables people say well i want to have my unused variables but in terms of safety like do you really because often that's you know in tiger beetle we've seen before zig made this change we saw we could have had some you know latent correctness bugs we we found them already but this principle of not allowing unused variables is a is a good principle you know from a safety perspective yeah. so um, and Zig is a very simple language, uh, but fundamentally, also, if you're a database, you need to handle memory allocation failure. You also mm. want very fine-grained control of your allocators that you can use. You don't want to have just a global allocator somewhere hidden, you know, and a panic. So again, C. It was either going to be C or Zig, and and the way I motivated this internally was I said, well, we're going to do C. <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody panicked and they said no please i want to i want to i want to be able to build this on my windows computer like i please give me a proper tool chain you know and zig had such a phenomenal compiler you can cross compile from windows to linux or to m1 chips it was the first compiler to do that um okay. and 
so it's just got a fantastic develop experience story you it's a great lovely compiler like it it's and and it's also one of the few languages that are also investing in the tool chain you know the compiler is so important um um so so I, it was always going to be zig i guess um but threatening right. c c helped <laughs> that is a captain kirk level bluff there <laughs> Well, I think it was unintentional, but retrospectively, you know, let's let's claim it for Kirk. <laughs> yeah, claim it as a win. Claim it as a win. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we've got the architecture. You've gone for Zig. I know you've another thing you've wanted to do differently is um, the way you approach testing, which I thought was very interesting in the architecture. Take me through that. Yes. Uh, thanks, Chris. So, yeah, and I guess just to add, you know. Both Zig and Rust, they they're phenomenal new systems languages. So, was again like, are we going to invest in the last thirty years of C, or you know what? If we're going to write a lot of code, where do we want to be in twenty years' time? What language do we want to be using? And for sure, like Rust or Zig. Um, so that that kind of made it very easy. Um, so yeah. testing, yeah, that was the other challenge, you know, because building a database, it's it's a storage engine. If you're a single node database, you have to build a storage engine. And that's something like a an LSM tree. Usually that's the big engine that powers these things these days. And typically, if you want to build a LSM tree and you want to get it production ready, they say people say, like, you know, it, it's about five years um, to, to not only to build it, to, to test it. Most of the time is dominated by testing. So you can yep. build it in a year, but then you tune it in another year and you test it in another three years. And and then, <laughs> yeah. you know, it gets it gets widespread adoption. But that's five years. And the problem was, you know, we needed a, a database that was not only single node like MySQL or Postgres, because we wanted a great operator experience that you just get automated failover and high availability. So you run Tiger Beetle as a cluster of like three or five nodes. And we actually support some more interesting configurations, you know, um, but this general idea, you know, a cluster of five nodes and your primary goes down and the cluster will automatically elect a new, it's basically um, backup and, and recovery like automated for you instead of you doing this, you know, doing manual failover between in a, in a multi-master setup, you know, for Postgres, mm. you don't want to do that manually at 2 a.m. Consensus no. can do that for you in a way that's automated and tested and highly available. The switchover happens within milliseconds. So, so, and, you, and, so slightly aside, uh, but did yeah, you roll yeah. your own consensus mechanism or have you done something like <laughs> Zookeeper? <laughs> great, great question. So, I think all of all of the, again the answer is always safety and I think it's surprising like so we we wrote yes we we picked a new systems language we wrote a new storage engine we wrote a new consensus protocol and the answer was was surprisingly always safety because a, again you know the research was showing that the way existing consensus protocols were proven you know that yes they had formal proofs for Paxos and Raft but the formal proofs missed something. They only considered how the network fails. They didn't look at how the storage fails. So if you want to okay. build something that is correct for Paxos or Raft, you have to guarantee that the disk never fails. So each, each disk of the cluster may never fail because otherwise the promise that was given during the voting phase of consensus that promise could get revoked, which could undermine the quorums, which could cause the cluster to regress into split brain and global data loss. Yeah. So your these two protocols rely on perfect disk. They call it, in the consensus world, they call it stable storage. Um, and the formal proof, there is no fault model. It just says disk is perfect. And that's fine. You can then solve that locally with with logical RAID like ZFS. You can't solve it with most RAID because most RAID, you know, if if there's a corruption on one of the disks, it, it's a guess as to 
are you going to recover in favor of parity or in favor of the corrupted version? You know, it's just XOR happening across the stripe. So okay. <clears throat> there's, a, there's research on this too. You know, RAID, RAID will make sure that your disks are in sync. But if there's corruption, there's not enough information at the block device level, check something to know which is the corrupt version in the stripe and which is the, the real version. So ZFS can get this right. So you sure, you can run your consensus over ZFS, but now you're paying the cost of 3x or 5x global replication plus 3x local replication. So now it's extremely expensive. Um, and, and again, so you know, you ZFS. Do? Yeah, so, so these were kind of what motivated us. You know, we thought, well, but the the big problem too is that actually like these consensus protocols if the storage engine takes five years to test the consensus protocols take 10 years and they still haven't found all the bugs and so you know if, even if we take an off-the-shelf protocol is it still safe mm. and do we understand it because we can take it but then we have the responsibility to audit the code you know, we can't just bring in a dependency if we don't understand it. And understanding an existing implementation of consensus, that is, again, going to take a year or two years to build up that in-house knowledge. So what we thought was, well, sure, we, we what we want is a storage fault model. We want to handle disk corruption, and we want to do that efficiently without local replication, because we already have the global replication. Um, and... There's been a ton, you know, the last 10 years of research on LSM trees since RocksDB and LevelDB. So we didn't want to take those two because there's, you can do it. There's a lot you can do these days. Um, for example, those have one second write stalls, which will bump your P100 latencies in your database. So, you, uh, yeah. So long, uh, short answer is basically we realized that there's this paper, UW-Madison, Protocol-Aware Recovery for Consensus-Based Storage. In other words, how do you build a distributed database in 2020? Um, that's the paper. How do you build a distributed database in 2020? And the answer is that you really need to design your local storage engine to work with your consensus protocol and vice versa. So what that okay. means is you want your storage engine LSM if it find yes, it must have checksums, but if it finds a checksum error, you don't want to do any local action immediately. You don't just want to like truncate your write ahead log because that could actually lead to data loss in the consensus protocol context. So what you really want to do is your LSM and your write ahead log of the database must be designed first class for your global consensus protocol and vice versa. Then, then what you can do is if you see a local corruption, you can actually ask the cluster and get a quorum in uh, correctly. Uh, and, yeah. and then you can say, well, what yeah. is the correct thing to do? Am I allowed to truncate this piece of data? And the cluster can say to you, yes, for sure. We know this was never committed it's safe to truncate. And that way you actually keep the cluster um, going much longer because now you know you, you know you can unstuck things. You know, you, it, yes, it's safe. You can quickly recover, truncate the log. You know for sure it's safe. But there are yeah. cases where you can't truncate the log because that log contains committed transactions and you need to, to preserve your vote to the cluster. So then the cluster will say, well, no, you can't truncate. And really, like, you have to ask the cluster. You can't. Uh, most of the existing designs, they they make this decision without reference to the consensus product, which is not correct. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so we, um, long, you know, a long answer. We, we realized we have to actually, this is going to be one of the first implementations of how you do this you know we're gonna make an integrated stable storage that's integrated with consensus protocol and the thing can be efficient um use the global replication to recover local faults and do that correctly high availability yeah that makes sense you know we had a, an episode recently with benjamin bengfort about um implementing your own consensus algorithm and how you could then have custom primitives inside the consensus algorithm and it's exactly that, but this is a specific use case of that idea, which is really interesting. Yes, yeah. No, yeah. I think that's that's often why this isn't adopted, because people will say, well, you know, we're building a new storage engine for Raft, 
but we don't we're not at liberty to to improve raft to be storage fault away and and so it's you yeah. you're stuck you've you've got the abstractions but it stops you from getting to the system you really want and yeah so yeah. The, but then the, yeah. the desire to make consensus a black box is coming from the fact that it seems too scary to open that box but you kind of do yes. need to open that box if you want to get the right behavior Yes, yeah, and you do yeah. want to understand it. You really, you do want to understand it, and and it comes back to zero cost abstractions because actually abstractions always carry a probability of being leaky if the abstraction boundaries are not exact. You know, um, and this is a classic example where the abstraction of global consensus protocol in isolation from local storage faults is actually. The, the formal proof needed to really consider the whole system, be a system proof. Mm. Uh, yeah. And, oh, one day and, we should have I, an episode I, with you and Benjamin for a SmackDown. That'd be interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, I think I still haven't answered your question. You know, how do you test? Testing. Um, we were talking about testing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've I've just made everybody nervous. Like you know, oh, they wrote their own storage <laughs> engine, they wrote their own consensus protocol. Uh, storage engine takes five years, consensus protocol takes ten years, and we still haven't got all the bugs. Um, well, I'm going to dip the, into that yeah. before we get to testing. In that case, as yeah. you mentioned it, because some people are going to look at this and think all these safety properties are very important and great, but it sounds like you're disappearing down a rabbit hole. How yes. are you actually going to get production from that large work stack? Yes, yes. So I think the surprising thing is we found a silver bullet. I love Fred Brooks, you know, no no, no silver bullet, but we did find one in the cave. And this is really like credit to Foundation DB. Um, they they wrote Foundation DB very differently also. You know, they mm. they wrote this whole database that you could run it in a simulator. So, you know, what's the best way to become a pilot? And in the past, you know, you used to jump in a plane and fly and crash and then you survive and you get better and you you put hours on and then yeah. one day people realized well we don't want to keep crashing our planes this is very expensive and we lose the pilots you lose so actually like let's build a flight simulator and we'll simulate everything and you you can crash inside the simulator where it's safe so that's sort of what foundation db did like i think they were one of the first most databases are not designed like this. You have to fly them for real and crash them in production and get the issues. Um, yeah. Foundation DB, you fly it in a simulator and then the simulator speeds up time also. So if you have to run your database for two years before you hit the bug, the simulator can speed up the passing of time. So you can get, you can find the bug in like two days of simulator time versus real you know these if, if you were to test a system with jepson you have to run it for two years um yeah. jepson can't speed up time so foundations found this very this the silver bullet you know so valuable this kind of it's actually called deterministic simulation testing it's the idea that you design the database to be run in a simulator because then you can speed up time you can you can get to um, for example, so Tiger Beetle, obviously, we did the same. We wrote our consensus and storage in, in a very specific way that it's deterministic. So given the same inputs and network latencies, you'll, the code will always execute exactly the same. And so you always get to the same answer, which means that now you can debug Tiger Beetle and from a single seed you generate this whole like SimCity world of events and it's like a big bang and, and a whole lot of chaos happens and then but you can always recreate that so if you find an interesting consensus bug your team you know you drop a little seed in Slack and suddenly everybody around the world can reproduce this whole series of millions and millions of distributed systems events you know and debug so this is like this is like generative testing, but you're not just generating the fixed data set from that seed. You're also generating how reliable is my network model in this simulation? How reliable is my disk in this simulation? That kind of thing. 
Exactly. And then, then what you do is you, you're simulating latencies. So yeah. if I, you know, and latencies alone are very interesting. If you simulate wild disk latencies, it could uncover a lot of in interesting race conditions in your database code. Um, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, existing systems could, could do more of this, but you, you can do this in the simulator, you know, wild latencies, um, network faults, and then storage faults. So Tiger Beetle, we actually, some of the tests we inject like 8% of corruption. Every time you read, the simulator will corrupt that read 8%. Um, and, and that's something that I think almost no database can handle. Um, there's a lot of checksumming, but usually the checksumming is there for crash consistency through power loss. But it, it isn't yeah. there to, to handle just corruption of everything in the data file. Like in, anything in the data, data file, let's just corrupt it 8% of the time on the read path. And then on the write path, we'll just 9% of the time, we'll write to the wrong place. Um, it, it will so write anywhere. So like shaking out that rare a bug. Yes, I, and we just do that. We do that every day. It's very normal, you know. So we operate like at extremely tight tolerances, like extremely rare bugs, and then the easy bugs become very easy. You know. Um, yeah, yeah. I almost hesitate to say this on record, but it seems like. There'd be the military would be interested in running your database in the field if you've got that level of fault tolerance, you know. Because I'm yes. just thinking, where where would you actually get eight percent disk corruption when there's when there's a battlefield happening around your disk, right? Yes, yes. Or yeah. or if you you know you you boost your tiger beetle into space and and you've got oh, yeah. you've got all these cosmic rays and when I was so, a I kid, mean, tiger beetle in oh. space was my favorite cartoon. So that's perfect. Is that really a, a cartoon? No, it's no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> okay, well, maybe for the next generation of kids, we can make it happen. Um, yeah, yeah, you um, could have it as a little sideline merchandise. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. so so we're sort of running out of time. But I do want to ask, what's your part? Where are you? What's your current status? Like in terms of alpha beta production, and how are you going to get to production? Yeah, so we're very close. We've actually only been a little over three years from from zero. And already the consensus is tested to a tolerance that most systems couldn't survive and the storage engine. Um, so we're, we're busy polishing and wrapping up and, and coming into some first releases this year, um, starting a release process in September and tagged releases. And then we'll increase the, you know, the guarantees of storage stability as we go. Um, that's sort of the, the current focus now is let's just you know, lock in our data file format. Um, I guess the second leap we haven't really dived into, you know, is, is at some point where, where can open source become a company, you know, so, and that, that happened last year, November, you know, this idea, you know, Tiger Beetle Incorporated. Yeah. And is, what's your angle for that? How are you going to um, make the open source software pay for itself? Yeah, so that that was also kind of a, a tension. You know, we were we were fully invested, and we still are in always in in Apache to open source because we we came out of an open source payment switch. Um, so we saw how you know open source is crucial to a business. You can't you you couldn't have a business supplying an open source payment switch with software that isn't open source. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, you know, e e even the BSL wouldn't work because it's not open source. Uh, so it is, it's the anti-business license. You know, we, we couldn't have a business if it's not open source. The question is, well, how do you do a business then if it is open source? And that, that took me a long time to figure out. But I think the key is just that it's mission critical. So people want, they, they, they want open source, but they also want people to run it for them because it's mission critical or if they run it themselves you know who who are you going to call uh, if if something yeah. does does so, go wrong cuz yeah so we may see tiger beetle support contracts and tiger beetle as a service before long yes yeah yeah i think <laughs> and it's it's quite i would love that you know and and the more people running tiger beetle the better like we um it, it's kind of i i would never have worked i i, I actually joined coil full-time to work on Tiger Beetle's open source, but I would never have worked on these things. I just see them as so valuable, you know, um, a new distributed database 
I love ZFS so much, you know, um, and I was always sad that they didn't, Oracle didn't get the license right. Um, <laughs> and so I, I would never have worked on a new, you know, distributed database technology if it wasn't open source, because I think these things are too valuable. They're, they're bigger than a company. It's an ecosystem, you know, so you, you really want, want this to be open source and, um, and it, it actually makes business sense. Um, you know, to create an ecosystem around yeah. this. Yeah. Well, I hope building the business around it works out so that you can keep the open source going for a long, long time. Yes. In no, the meantime, well, thanks, Yaron, thanks very much for giving us the breakdown and I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. So thanks again to you. Cheers. Thank you, Yoran. It's got to be said, he is biting off a lot there, but it's an interesting bite to take. And his ideas about testing, I think he might be onto something. He might actually accelerate the development of making that database reliable by a heck of a lot. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to one of Tiger Beetle's test cases. It's an easy read, it's well written, and it's interesting. The way they've modeled like cluster failure and disk failure, network failure straight into the test suite. It's probably the way we should be doing really, really mission-critical integration testing. Something to learn in that code. I think we're also, something to learn, going to need to have a dedicated episode on Zig, the language he's using. I'm keen to learn more about that, so I'll go and look for a guest. Stay tuned. And of course, the best way to stay tuned is to click subscribe and notify and all the buttons, whatever buttons your app has. If you've liked this episode, please do leave a like or a share or a rating or all three, because ultimately that translates into there being more episodes to come for a long, long time. And it makes my day too. And with that, I think I'll leave you to your day. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Joran Dirk Grief. Thanks for listening. 